This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. And she told me to get lost, and now she expects me to drop everything and start dating her. And so we talked okay, about frustrated this. frustrated from Wisconsin. <laughs> yes. And so when I, so yes, this is, a, this is my story. And neither of you have ever heard it, have you? Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I am Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And I'm not just joined by one of my parents this evening. We're joined by the other, my mother, the first time on the podcast. How's it going, Ma? It's going okay so far. All right, so let's uh, dive right in. Uh, Any new guest has to go through our hot seat. So tell us a little about yourself. Uh, The audience would love to know where uh, I come from as... uh, the other half of my parental unit. Um, let's see. I I uh, have been married to Dana for uh, 32 years, and uh, we work together side by side in our law firm. And um, I like to travel when I have the opportunity. I like to cook. You like long walks on the beach with uh, potentially romantic <laughs> people. Is, is that where we're going? No, you asked me about myself, and I'm pretty boring. Okay, so uh, the other questions that we normally ask most of our guests, um, you know, why do you love movies? Um, because they're a source of entertainment and an escape from everyday reality. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what is your favorite movie, and why? <laughs> My favorite movie is Pillow Talk with Doris Day. And um, I love that movie because it's it's romantic, it's a time period piece, but I think that the the romance story can be um, it doesn't die. It's the it's funny yet today about a man who's a womanizer who's finally caught by the woman of his life and. Um, the lengths he has to go to to reel her in once he figures out that he loves her. And um, I just love the humor. I love the allusions to different things because at the time period, they couldn't show things. You could only allude to um, a sexual encounter or you could... uh, uh, Those kinds of things, you couldn't come right out and show them on TV. So how they go about trying to... Uh, portray that part of a relationship when it was sort of taboo is interesting and um, I don't know I just I've always enjoyed the film I could watch it over and over and over well that is one of our uh, eventual questions for one of our categories and you've kind of already um, glossed around it a little bit but what makes a good movie for you Um, I love time period pieces so if I can learn something too about the the um, place and the time with which the the movie takes place I like um, I'm not one to big into all kinds of uh, tragedy or um, I like something that's a little bit more lighthearted, but that I might still be able to learn something from alright well let's dive into this week's um, episode 
Um, recognizing that um, right now the country is kind of going through uh, a collective painful period. Um, we'd be remiss, given that our podcast is from Wisconsin, knowing that um, we're kind of in the epicenter of some things going around the country or going on. Um, and uh, we, for whatever it's worth, from wherever you might be listening, we are trying to do the things that we know best to do. Um, maybe provide a small semblance of uh, joy or happiness, maybe a minute or two of escape um, from whatever else is going on. And we're with everybody that's um, going through some tough times right now, whether that's the pandemic or otherwise, uh, <coughs> just uh, letting you know that we are uh, here and we're trying to do our best in whatever way we know how to do uh, within the powers we've been given. So... One comment I would make is is we're not minimizing or ignoring the shooting of recent vintage that occurred in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's just that as white males, um, we have a very difficult time understanding, and sometimes it's best if we just don't say anything that would be taken wrongly. It's more important, I think, for us to try to listen and understand than to talk so don't uh, please don't consider that uh, callousness on our part we just don't feel capable of really helping or addressing the issue well at least not adequately equipped in our own if you want to see us kind of um, stumble around in the dark a little bit of that I would refer you back to our health episode which I think was number 21 um, for maybe a little bit better um, insight as to where we're at uh, potentially with that. So, uh, moving forward, uh, the movie in question this evening is Sleepless in Seattle. It was the one that uh, we've maybe mentioned a couple of times in recent weeks of uh, trying to get to. I think I mentioned it last week while uh, you were on vacation. We did one of our back episodes. But just to give context to everybody, um, the basic plot summary outline after the death of his wife, Sam Baldwin, played by Tom Hanks, moves to Seattle with his son Jonah, played by Ross Mallinger. When Jonah calls into a talk radio program to find a new wife for his father, Sam grudgingly gets on the line to discuss his feelings. Annie Reed, played by Meg Ryan, a reporter in Baltimore, hears Sam speak and falls for him, even though she is engaged. Unsure where it will lead, she writes Sam a letter asking him to meet her at the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day. Um... Just the uh, recognition background, this film was nominated for Best Original Screenplay and Song. Did not win for either. Uh, but it is listed in AFI's Top 10 of 10 as the number 10 romantic comedy film of all time. And their 100 Years, 100 Passions at number 45. So, uh, the first question we always get to, what is your connection to this movie? Let's start with our guest. Well, this is a movie that we saw in the theater when it first came out. It's um, and we loved it then. We we went out. We bought the soundtrack for the film because the music in this particular movie is moving. It's I don't know something that I think that you can put on at any point and it and and listen to it and sing along with it or. Um, work to it or whatever you might want to do and all of the songs on it are so classic that they 
even if they were done, you know, in the 50s or whatever, um, they're, they just don't end. So I think that the music really carried me away. Um, although the story is, again, a lighthearted, uh, romantic comedy that surpasses time, I think it could still happen. Dad, Mom's stolen a little bit of your thunder on this one, but uh, do you remember anything differently or anything you'd like to add to that? Well, <clears throat> yes, I, I'll go back. I'm on the cusp of remembering some of this because actually some of the songs in here, two of the songs from the soundtrack were sung by Jimmy Durante, uh, Nat King Cole was in. I was, uh, I am just old enough and uh, enough of a movie and TV fanatic to have been watching the Ed Sullivan show back in the early 70s um, when I was just a small child. And I remember Jimmy Durante. I remember Jimmy Durante having specials at Christmas and such. So to me, this was a, a connection on the music. Okay, And the movie itself, having gone through a, a situation where um, I met my wife by happenstance and strange coincidence, um, there's a certain element that that movie speaks to me about because it's the same thing. So, uh, happenstance and coincidence. So, as far as myself, um, I do remember having seen this film at some point. But I only think I've seen it once before we watched it over the weekend. Um, it is something that is available within the uh, realm of pop culture. It's refer or it, particularly the last scene is referenced a lot. It's kind of become a placeholder after this of uh, um, a certain romanticism. But uh, I can't say I remembered a ton of all the details in between or all of the other things. To a certain extent, it was kind of like rewatching the movie for the first time um, to an extent that you can do that, even though I knew roughly the ending and so how some things went about. I didn't remember how they got there. So it was a different experience in that particular regard. So, Dad, what is this movie about? This movie is about... Um, believing in love and the transcendence of love and uh, believing that some things are just meant to be even though they're not necessarily logical. Do you have a different perspective, Ma? Um, no, I think it's all about the chance meetings of two different people and um, um, the fact that you can fall in love with an idea or um, an ideal or a person without ever having necessarily met them. I think people see a lot of that now with the online stuff or with, you know, that you can, that you can meet someone and then there's that, that spark even that can be, take place over, um, in this case it was a letter over the radio or, um, but I think yeah, I think the same as Dad. I think that it's it's just a chance meeting that can happen. You guys have picked up a lot on the magical quality that's uh, often observed or pushed on us through the course of the movie. 
uh, I particularly went in a, a different thing because um, one of the things that was a central focus for me that I think both of you uh, either haven't missed or didn't necessarily grasp in your description of this is, you know, what is real love, especially in the context of loss? I think a lot of the pieces of this movie yeah. are very much in the context of loss. Even from Meg Ryan's perspective, it's uh, a different type of loss, but it's there. Because as she's going along during the course of this movie, she's realizing all the things she's missed out on because she hasn't experienced um, the real, I guess, love that she's expecting. She's trying to get that. She's trying to force it to a certain extent with Bill Pullman. But she also she also sees through his voice on the radio what kind of love he had for his wife Correct. and realizes that she doesn't think that her relationship has that same character building, I mean passion passion that Correct. that he had been describing and then everybody's telling her you you just know it's magic. Well, it isn't, it's not, it's also work, but this guy had had an undying love for for a woman, and it's, it's so unusual that a man will discuss it, let alone over the phone, to a whole world of strangers about how much he really loved his wife. I think there's another larger aspect to the loss um, category that we focus so much on the relational aspect of... Uh, the romantic part of this movie, uh, particularly between the couples and the rest of it. I think there's the number one aspect that really starts to sell the film, though, is um, Tom Hanks's son, played by Ross Mallinger, Jonah. And the loss that he's endured, but that he's trying to assist his dad. The whole uh, impetus for him to make the call in the first place is uh, my Christmas wish is I want my dad to have a new wife because he senses all of the loss that his dad is going through and that his dad isn't capable of being there for him in the ways that he's going to need to support him. So there's a, a context of loss in a lot of different capabilities of this that only through that loss do you appreciate all of the things when you do have that presence. Um, we're going to get to. He didn't ask for a mom for himself. He asked for a right. wife for his dad. Right. It, to a certain degree, that's being selfless, and there's. Uh, I know that's um, put in the context of kind of an awe moment. But I want to draw your attention to specifically um, something that I didn't end up putting in the best quotes nominations. But do you remember the end of the phone call where um, he's? And I'll just kind of read it off to you. I, I went and looked it up, but. Uh, I'm going to get out of bed every morning, breathe in and breathe out all day long. Then after a while, I won't have to remind myself to get out of bed every morning and breathe in and out. And then after a while, I won't have to think about how I had it great and perfect for a while. And, you know, you and I have gravitated. This is going to be our 30th episode um, out so far. You and I have often gravitated towards summation lines. To a certain extent, for what this movie is about, that's a fairly good and susceptible, or not susceptible, but succinct um, summation line. Correct, I would agree. So, let's move into the categories then. Um, just so uh, we can give our guest maybe a little entrance point into this. Dad, who is your best performer? I'm going to go a little 
outside of the box on this, and I'm going to pick Nora Ephron, the director. Um, she doesn't get a lot of uh, buzz in general because she had an untimely death due to cancer, but she was highly regarded. She was a writer. She was a columnist. Um, she directed films. She wrote screenplays. Um, she's most noted for being the ex-wife of uh, um, Carl Bernstein because they both worked at the Washington Post together when they were married. But I think that if you watch or read anything that Nora Ephron did, this is really her masterpiece. This is her summation of her life's work. This It presents life in a very... This is what life is. You have to deal with life, and you look for the joy and happiness as you can find it. And I think that summarizes her, and she did a very lovely, and I don't use the term lovely very often, but lovely job of putting this together. I bounced around a little bit on this one. Um, there were a couple of people I really went between I thought about Efron um, I thought about Meg Ryan I, you know in context I thought about the writer to a certain degree um, I have some quibbles with that that'll come up later that uh, we'll discuss uh, but ultimately for the amount of things he was asked to do the highs and lows of his performance and the ways in which he was able to do that so naturally, and he's been able to do it naturally for most of his career, I had to give it to Hanks, and that feels a little bit cliche, but sometimes it's cliche for a reason. Um, he is... That, that phone call to initiate the whole thing and set it off, and his monologue when his boss gives him the card for the shrink in the first you know, five, ten minutes of the movie where he kind of goes off on these uh, or on that I guess rant, if you will are probably some of his prime work, because you think about this this is right before Hanks um, did Philadelphia and Forrest Gump um, this is 93, he won Best Actor in 93 for Philadelphia, then he followed it up in 94 with Forrest Gump and that was the his back-to-back -back, uh, Best Actor wins so this is right around that time where he's honing in that level of emotional um, syllogism. And I, I ultimately think he performed as well as you could have done because I don't think there are a ton of people that could have made the character relatable enough to uh, make this movie work. So Ma, we turn our attention to you. Who was your best performer? I think the kid. I don't know. Who Ross Mallinger? Yes. I think he did, for being as young as he is, played a character that um, that was a relatable. That he was believable. That he really wanted this. And that he had a, played the good relationship with his single dad. You know, in in the problems that they have and in, in um, and I know that he was a minor character, really. Um, it was really about 
you know, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks characters, Annie and um, but but I think that he he initiated that all and I think as a young person to have that kind of feeling and emotion and bring that through when he's never really experienced any of that stuff is good. I think he did a really nice job. So there are two notable kid actors in this movie and just for the sake of it I did go and look them up. Uh, Malinger hasn't really done anything beyond this movie. There's some small bit parts here and there. I think he had one significant role. I can't remember offhand because I'm not looking at it right now what that might have been. The other kid actor is actually fairly well known. She's been on some other programs, but not nothing really since about 2014. Um, she had a, a few larger roles in some big time stuff, but for not having been in a whole lot of other projects and... Um, not being well-known or whatever else. You kind of like the fact that they're a little bit unknown to these types of movies, um, bringing in that kind of innocence to the, the audience. you like Jessica. Correct. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, from this perspective, I um, put Malinger as my best minor performer um, for probably most of the same reasons you've already mentioned. Well, Malinger um, actually went on to have a fairly normal life, went to college, got a regular job and in fact I was doing some research and it was in the trades that he actually recently filed for divorce so his his marriage has ended um, after like five years so that shows you that time has gone that far by that this is a grown man now living a life and has gone through a marriage that's now failed now we sound like a bit of a gossip column <laughs> I'm just telling you what I researched. It, was, it It's kind of an odd detail to be bringing that up on somebody who's not even really in the limelight, save for this one movie, but we, we digress. So who was your best minor performer then? Bill Pullman. Okay. Because he had to play a dork who wasn't a dork. And he uh, played the part... Well, he didn't go too far. The escape from the prison camp. Oh, damn uh, you. Well, <laughs> you could def- definitely talk about it, too. I mean, sure, it's fine. Limited. Whatever. Well, I think that's where the movie really starts to take off. Obviously, I think the way they flashed back to that sequence, so they open it up and they kind of drop you into the middle of that and then the explosions and all the things that are happening. Then they do the backtracking, and they get it all the way back up to that present point. But where he really creates Iron Man for the first time, and he pops out, and that's like that big action sequence, and you're just kind of pumped up going through that whole thing where he just lights everybody on fire and then takes off and uh, has that moment where he's in flight and escapes the, the camp and everything successful to get him out of there. I think that's the one moment where not only the first act really ends, but gives you that uh, inkling of what's to come with the rest of the character. And it's a great closing sequence. It's actually a great uh, way to have plotted out the entire script to end on that note, because that's about, what, uh, 40 minutes into the film, 45 
So that yes. that's a good breaking point to give you that one really cool action sequence that says, all right, now you you have my attention. Here's what's to come. Um, I'm going to go with the, the scene of um, Stark and Pepper on the balcony almost kissing. I'm like, why? Why didn't you finish? What was the purpose? Why did you stop? I'm kind of like, you know, was it the goop? Are you just going to be, like, facetious the whole time and just poke fun at all of this? No, but every time I watch her anymore, all I can think of is her goop. <laughs> Let's then go into the further essences of goop and, uh, what is it, the vaginal candles? Yes. Ugh. <laughs> uh, uh. Alright, uh, I'm going to go with First Flight. I think it's the next big action sequence where uh, you have to go through this in stages as he creates the suit, as he becomes the character. You know, it's a lot of the tropes in these first introduction movies where you get the character in action for the first time. And taking flight as the superhero is always that kind of uh, mythical moment. There's that trope a lot in Superman movies. Uh, you get it the first time, like, Spider-Man is web-slinging in the Sam Raimi movie. And so I think it's just a, a nice moment to really signify this is the character arriving, and this is what the superhero is going to be, or what his suit's going to look like, and how the character's going to interact. And it's a moment of accomplishment because... He's created this ridiculously cool thing out of absolutely nothing, and he's now going to be a superhero. And I think it's fitting that, yeah, I can fly. Well, I'm going to nominate the Jeff Bridges, I'm a bigger Iron Man than you are uh, scene, because uh, ultimately Jeff Bridges gets so caught up in the power and everything, he kind of loses sight of all the nuances that have to occur whenever you take on new technology to make sure it works. You know, I thought it was funny, the ice, you know, the ice problem, and he's plummeting. How he managed to actually survive that, considering the circumstances, I'm not sure. I know how it had to go that way for the movie and the climactic ending, but ultimately... I would have thought it would have been just as funny and uh, entertaining to have had him just crash and die based on that ice. Yeah, I'm not really certain why they didn't go with that, because it is kind of a fitting, oh yeah, Tony outsmarted him kind of situation. This guy had every advantage in order to beat him, and ultimately I think that is something of the hero character, that they have to be outmatched and ultimately find a way either through smarts or uh, something clever to figure out a way past the antagonist. And it's just much more successful. In that way, I think it ends up being that. But I also think you need that climactic ending with the flickering arc reactor in his chest that signifies his heart and all of that stuff in order to make it um, you know, more cinematic. But... I, I kind of agree with you that they could have ended it with that, and it makes just as good a sense. Yes. Just me. So, the next one I'm going to do 
I'm going to go back a little bit further before my first nominee, and it's start creating the arc reactor. Because when he's kind of tinkering around, and I think it's one of the indicative moments of what Stark becomes in the rest of the MCU. He's not just Iron Man, but he's also Tony Stark. And he's the guy creating all of the gear and the cool gadgetry, and he's clearly smarter than everybody else. Obviously, there's a line later on in the movie. You know, Tony Stark created this in a cave with a bunch of scraps. Well, yeah, because it's Tony Stark. Tony Stark is somehow like this super genius beyond the capabilities of apparently everybody but uh, Bruce Banner to outthink and create in ways that nobody else has the capacity to. And I think it does set up a lot of his character, particularly for sequences like uh, any of the Avengers movies where he's creating all of the tech that's available for the rest of the Avengers. Uh, It's just that small moment where we get a eventual expansion on his uh, capabilities. I don't know. Maybe the next movie they could bring him back and he could create an electric car. What's your next one? I like the scene with uh, Leslie Bibb, um, the uh, interview where she's like in his face. And the next thing you know, they're like in the bedroom going at it. And then she wakes up and the computer is giving her instructions on how to leave and how to, you know, what about going away. I just thought, boy, there's there's the ultimate and smooth. The guy is able to, to fend off uh, adverse... Uh, press, turn it into a, a conquest, and then duck out before anything has to be done. I mean, it's the ultimate um, cool. I, I know that Stan Lee is in this playing supposedly Hefner, but that is a Hefner-type scenario. Fair point. I think it is one of those sit-up-and-take-notice moments of the playboy aspect of Stark's character, although you get a little bit of that in the lines before when they're in the fun V, where, you know, is it true that you got all or were uh, or slept with every one of Maxim's cover models? And so that that obviously tries to open up that portion of things, but that is much more blatant. And so you get that that side of Stark where he could have any relationship he decides, and ultimately, when he decides to invest in Pepper, that that pays off a little bit more. So I'm going to go with what's ultimately my nominee for favorite scene, and I think it's when you get the fully actualized Iron Man for the first time. It's him rescuing Golmira slash the training exercise. It's always been my favorite sequence of the movie because it's the hero getting pissed off and going to rectify or take care of business. And then he just has this moment of just heroism or like the machismo that's exuded by that. Epitomized by that one small sequence. And it was in that original trailer where the tank fires a giant shot at him. He ducks out of the way then fires a small little like grenade or uh, rocket-propelled piece at the tank and it has it explode, and then just walks away like it was nothing. And it's just like, yeah, that's what you want out of your superhero. 
Well, the one question I have on that scene is, is he pulls a guy through a stone wall and the guy is fine. He gets up and runs away. I think he would have been in a little more uh, worse shape than that. Okay, we will visit all of the places that this movie has problems from its action sequencing or its story continuity or any of the other pieces that don't make sense. But let's get through this portion first. All right, fine. Go ahead. So do you have any other nominees? No. So I'm going to nominate the two press conferences as well. Uh, I think there are good bookends to drive the narrative of the character. You don't often get the the reason why I think a lot or this character resonates a little bit more than uh, the average character has partly to do with the altruistic nature. Despite his character flaws, he somehow is unconventional in a lot of ways, but ultimately makes the non-self-serving, non-monetization, non-investor move, and decides to shut down his weaponry in order to make the world a better place. And so that's indicative of what you would want a hero to essentially do, but that nobody does actually in real life, which tells you a lot already just from that character. But then that final moment, I think for as climactic as the battle on the roof is that moment where he reveals, and I, it was somewhat of a shocking movie. All of the primary characters you have gotten up to this point, the Holy Trinity of primary superheroes, Batman, Superman, and Spider-Man, you know, they're in their, or they have their uh, secret identities And so they're always very protective of that, and only certain people can know who they are, and they always have to be self-sacrificing. Whereas this guy, yeah, uh, I am Iron Man. Close scene. And it's like that pump-up moment, and somehow it it works that that uh, bravado carries through. Now, part of it is also the choice to have Iron Man the Black Sabbath song on top of it, but... It was a great close to the movie. The last one I want to do, and I think it's just noteworthy to nominate it because it was eventually a staple of the Avengers series, is the cutscene at the end, or the end credit scene, it's been more commonly called. But the scene with Nick Fury and the Avengers initiative, it's maybe 30 seconds but I think that might be one of the most impactful scenes. I, it's not my best scene, but it needs to be at least generally discussed. But I'm sure it'll come up a little bit more later. So out of these, what do you think was the best scene, though? The escape. I think it was well done. I thought it was heroic. I thought it really got you on the side of Stark and really got you rooting for him to take on the role as being the Avenger of evil, the fighter of uh, bad uh, motives, um, the guy who is going to ultimately come through in the end and right the, the the wrongs that have been created in his name up until that point. I'm going to go with First Flight. Ultimately, I think there is a lot to be, or that needs to come through in a scene like that. 
And I think they did it incredibly successfully. And the sheer enjoyment and enthusiasm that you can tell in Downey when uh, he takes off and he, he flies for the first time, I think that's a magical moment for not only the character, but just a superhero movie in general. And so I think that that ends up being a nice uh, midpoint for the entire movie that ultimately uh, endears you to the character more than almost anything else, I think. Uh, I already gave my favorite scene, but what was yours? Um, I I really enjoy the... uh the exact same scene, which is I, I thought was the best scene, which is the escape, because, I mean, it, it really got you motivated to, like, hey, yeah, this guy's really going to, you know, accomplish something. So I, I thought that was the scene I enjoyed the most for that reason. Okay, my most indelible moment has a lot more to do with things that came after it, but it's the final moment of the movie. Well, at least the main portion of the movie, not the ending sequence, but it's I Am Iron Man. And that does come up later, hopefully not a big spoiler for everybody else, since uh, Endgame was the biggest movie in the history of cinema last year, when we could actually still go to theaters, but that obviously does have a bigger impact, and because of that movie and how it all started and everything else, it is the thing that I probably remember most from this movie. What was yours? The ending itself, I guess, uh, to some extent, simply the, the, the climactic scene on the roof, uh, the fighting of uh, really... Uh, Jeff Bridges represented greed, corporate greed, and the yes. fact that uh, ultimately he came to understand that greed and his own behavior was not appropriate, and he was able to fight even it against uh, uh, overwhelming odds since he was a bigger unit and able to do more and all this. He was ultimately able by wits and tenacity to overcome the ultimate greed associated with corporate greed. All right, we will be right back after this commercial sponsor. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one no matter the listener size, which will help help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, If you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Welcome back. We are now jumping into Best Lines. Uh, What do you have down as your first nominee, Dad? Uh, let's face it, this isn't the worst thing you ever caught me doing. That line, I would have nominated, but it provides, or has to have so much context to it. Uh, it it certainly was one of the funniest ones, but if for whatever reason you have not seen a 12-year-old film, it is available currently on Disney+, and that is a scene that is a definitely funny moment of the film. Uh, first one I had, um... 
Obadiah, so Jeff Bridges' character. When I ordered the hit on you, I was worried that I was killing the Golden Goose. But, you see, it was just fate that you survived it, leaving one last golden egg to give. You really think that just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? Your father, he helped us give us the atomic bomb. Now, what kind of world would it be today if he was as selfish as you? Yeah, I. that is a good line. It's kind of a summation line of Jeff Bridges' character. Um, and one of the unresolved issues, that line leads me to that point, uh, and we'll talk at the end about it, but... Um, okay, so you have a probably a very similar unanswered question or final question that I do as well. Because part of my final question was his motivations and some of that, because if you're ever going to get that explanation from the villain, this is probably as close to we get it in this film, but ultimately this film really isn't about the antagonist as much as it is just the protagonist pushing whatever antagonist is out the way. So, yeah, I can, you know, I understand your point, and I understand the quote, and I understand where you're going with it. And it is interesting because it does do more development for the antagonist than really you have in a lot of films. One of the few criticisms of the MCU up until pretty recently has been how thin or how hollow the villains are. And I think that this being the only real character, I guess, explanation or growth motivation is kind of telling of how thinly done the the villains were in this, I guess, the movie that essentially created the rest of the series or set the, the tone, the structure for the rest of the series. So from this villain, we get a bunch of other very thin foils. What's your next nominee? I prefer the weapons you only have to fire once. It's kind of um, the epitome of him up until his... Well, he he reaches his climactic point where his life changes dramatically because his of his circumstances. The point where he comes to realize that what he's doing is not necessarily beneficial. And... Um, you know, it, it really it really kind of exemplifies exactly that attitude of the big weapons manufacturer that only looks at their side of it, which is, you know, if it wasn't for us, things wouldn't be safe. Well, I'm going to lead into the next nominee that I have, but again, you're taking it from the perspective that this is one of only one or two or three uh, movies out of this franchise that you've seen. I think had you seen all of them like I have, you would realize that even though he kind of makes a, and I don't mean pun intended here, but stark change to his life and his motivations in the middle of this movie, he still takes that same attitude. There's still that bravado of, I'm going to do it bigger, badder, and better than anyone else, and I'm going to default to trying to find the weapon that you only have to fire once. But the next nominee I wanted to put down, well, Miss Brown, it's an imperfect world, but it's the only one we got. I guarantee you the day weapons are no longer needed to keep the peace, I'll start making bricks and beams for baby hospitals. 
You rehearse that much? Every night in front of the mirror before bedtime. I can see that. I'd like to show you firsthand. All I want is a serious answer. Okay, here's serious. My old man had a philosophy. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. That's a great line coming from the guy selling the sticks. Good. I mean, it, it could go in concert with the, the other line that I had, too, which is just uh, before that. My father helped defeat the Nazis. He worked on the Manhattan Project. A lot of people, including your professors at Brown, would call that being a hero. And a lot of people would also call that war profiteering. Tell me, do you plan to report on the millions we are sa- or we've saved by advancing medical technology or kept from starvation with our IntelliCrops? All those breakthroughs. Military funding, honey. And I, I think these are the types of lines from a dialogue perspective that I always enjoy or that resonate with me as a, somewhat of a writer because it's exposition while still driving something more. These are fun quippy lines but there's also explaining more to these characters and their personality than is immediately apparent there's so much under the surface here he's a weapons manufacturer he's got an attitude he's a clearly comfortable person with himself he has a beyond confident personality because he's the golden boy his father it's a multi-generational thing i mean there there's so many different aspects to those two dialogue sets and then it it's kind of indicative that it's from one of the scenes that you actually nominated as to how this movie kind of plays out i like that we start with uh the crucible moment or him getting essentially blown up and then we go into the exposition to kind of give you the backstory and then lead back up to that moment and how they did the interplay on that one, because I think it is more effective than had they started with this scene. I think to some extent the uh, interplay that goes on in those situations is a little contrived because in reality, most people do not end up having those kinds of dialogues. Most of the time, people who are in those situations and they get into a heated argument end up because they can't think fast enough and make a cogent point will go like, oh, yeah. Well, of course, that's why this is the movies. Nobody really talks like this. Moving on. What's your next nominee? Um, I really didn't have anything. I looked through stuff and I'm like, Nothing really resonated with me. I mean, there's a lot of funny lines and cute lines and whatever, but I didn't think anything was overly impactful. I mean, most of this really is, to a large extent, action-oriented. And it's the action that really makes it. The lines kind of bridge between the action sequences to me. You know, and, and so I had a hard time finding lines that I really liked. Okay. And that's fair. I'll give you the few other ones that I really wanted to highlight. So Tony and Yinsen kind of during the escape, because I think this is the defining moment of Tony's motivation. Come on, you're going to see your family. Get up. My family is dead, Stark, and I'm going to see them now. It's okay. I want this. I want this. Stark is silent for a moment. Thank you for saving me. Don't waste it. Don't waste your life, Stark. And I think that comes to define his almost rebirth for the rest of the movie. Uh, 
the other part. So I mentioned it briefly, the the press conference scene, but this is how we kind of began the first press conference. And I think there's a lot more in this, especially if you know how his relationship with his father plays out over the course of the MCU and that this comes back around a lot of different times. I never got to say goodbye to my father. There's questions I would have asked him. I would have asked him how he felt about what his company did, if he was conflicted, if he ever had doubts, or maybe he was every inch of man we remember from the newsreels. I saw young Americans killed by the very weapons I created to defend them and protect them, and I saw that I had become part of a system that is comfortable with zero accountability. I think not only is he dealing with the demons that created him, but at the same time, basically creating a mission statement in that small introduction. And then finally, and I think this is, again, for me as the most indelible moment, the truth is, pause, I am Iron Man. Well, I like the the whole idea or the whole concept of the uh, father-son dynamic. And, of course, being father and son podcast. Well, this, again, and I would encourage most people to see, if not all the films, at least most of them, especially the ones involving the principal Avengers. So Thor, I guess you could probably skip Thor Dark World. It's probably the worst Marvel movie that is part of this universe. But uh, Captain America has been my favorite of the series of avenger movies because i think all three of them are the strongest and then the iron man movies but then create that through to the rest of the avengers movies there's four of those as well and there's really a development through the course of all of those films as to how stark relates to his parents because i think his dad and his mom come up specifically in a couple of different cases for each of the Captain America films. So there's kind of a larger story to be told. And given that his company and everything he's gotten is from his father, especially you can see the development of this plot line in Iron Man 2 as there's a much different relationship to his father and how that plays out and how that has to expand in order to understand who Tony Stark is to get his eventual climax at the end of the last Avengers movie. So I I think this is indicative of the, the larger sense as a whole. And yes, it's hard for me not to bring in all of the other pieces of this storyline because I mean, that's nine movies worth. It's a big part of who this ends up being. Well, ultimately, I think the the dynamic of this lays out exactly a principle that I've thought long and hard about, which is men and uh, adolescents, whatever, have a tendency to try to migrate towards the 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 point or the example that they have before them. So boys grow towards their father unless. There's something about their father that they uh, disrespect or can't appreciate or don't understand. And then they go through a conflict that may take years, if not most of their lives, to resolve. Because the norm is that you try to exemplify 
and this is especially true of of uh, sons and fathers. You try to exemplify your father, and you try to resolve the conflicts. Either that you don't like your father for something, or you don't understand your father for something. And I think most of the time, people go through a long period of time trying to to resolve those conflicts, especially men. And most of the male problems, the male psychological problems, it resolves around that. Either not liking what their father is and don't wanting to be their father, or not understanding their father, or liking their father and fearing they will not be as good as their father. Those are the three points. And I think to some extent, the whole concept of Stark and his father is foreshadowed in this film. And I think it kind of exemplifies what probably has made several billions of dollars in psychoanalysis for the uh, mental health industry trying to resolve. You know, I mean, I, I can think of my dad and his father, and I can think of me and my father, and that's where I came to this conclusion, and I'm watching, and in my profession, seeing how men in, uh, have to deal with their relationships with their fathers. And it, it's, it's difficult to be a father, and it's difficult to relate to a father. And I don't think it's nearly as difficult for women who have a much more social aspect of this. So my guess is, is that the Marvel Universe, especially this kind of dynamics, whether it's, uh, and for that matter, DC uh, as well, Batman trying to live up to his father's image or Stark living up to his father's image, I think these comics, if not overtly trying to exemplify this issue, do it subtly and maybe not intentionally, or maybe intentionally, I don't know, but I think it does show something significant that's in our culture. I think that's why I have a hard time with some of these so-called serious directors. Like, Martin Scorsese has repeatedly been harsh toward what he deems to be pop films and their place within cinema, that they're not real cinema. And I think there are a lot of deeper themes and explorations that can be explored in these films. I honestly don't see a ton of difference in Star Wars, the original, and why it could be considered a greater classic film by comparison to Jaws or any of these other big blockbuster pop films of the time. Why is something that was box office successful like... <sighs> Spartacus, all that much different than Iron Man. I mean, legitimately, I, I say that in all seriousness, other than the fact that it takes place in a much more grandiose and large-scale universe where things are a little bit more magical. But I really don't see what separates the Terminator or Jurassic Park or some of these other giant blockbuster movies from the comic book world other than the built-in narrative about them and people just not taking them seriously, which 
I try and give them their opinion and their respect for what they are. I just simply don't agree with it. The other thing that I'm going to say with this, and I think this is part of this line, so I'm going to ask this question in all seriousness. We've never really discussed about it. We've talked about it subtly, and I know it was hard for you at the time, but in this, he says, I never got to say goodbye to my father. Now, you find out in a later movie that his father died rather suddenly. In fact, we're recording this technically. I think there was an article on comicbook.com today that this would have been, I think, the 20th anniversary of the Stark parents' death uh, today in like the regular universe, if the Marvel Universe was real. But his parents died rather suddenly in a car accident, and so he didn't get to say goodbye. Now, your dad was sick for a long time, yes. but you weren't there at the end. You were rushing to be there, but he passed away in transit. So, do you really feel that you got to say goodbye to him? And if not, are there things that now, looking back on it, that you would have liked to have asked him? No, because when you know your father is ill and may die at any moment, um, he had cancer and um, was in hospice. Every time you saw him, you had to assume that was going to be the last time you were going to see him. And so I was able to prepare myself and to tell him things and to say things. And even then, um, even though it had advanced to his brain and he had been really lacking in cognitive abilities for the most part towards the end, I know that the nurse held the phone up as I told him I would be there as soon as I could and that I loved him. And the nurse said he reacted to that. I, I really believe that he was able to understand that part. So, no. It's different in that circumstance because you can prepare for it for a long period of time. Whereas my mom died of a heart attack suddenly and unexpectedly. That was much different, and to some extent, I know by my actions and circumstances how she felt and that I kind of said goodbye every time, but that sudden death does make a difference because it does not allow you the closure that you have with a long death. It's much more grueling to go through a long-term death than it is a sudden death. The sudden death is more painful and quicker, um, but you tend to recover. But I think it, the the aspects or the, the results linger much more than the long-term death because you're able to come to terms with it over a period of time. So I, I look at it as having the advantage and the disadvantage of having death of both parents in completely different ways because I understand so much about them and can relate. And ultimately, I'm going to say this, which is something that I realized after my, my mom had gone about 10 years before my dad. And after the uh, funeral and I was driving back, you guys were smaller yet, or and in the, the van we were driving at the time, and I got to about 
he lived in Beloit. We live in Wisconsin Rapids, about three hours apart. And I got to about Portage, which was about two hours away. And I came almost to the point where the highway splits. And some revelation hit me at that moment in time, which is that once your last parent goes, you are no longer, you no longer have a youth. As long as your parents are alive, you can go back to the childhood you had. But once both parents are gone, it becomes your past. And you now realize you are the patriarch of the family, and it changes you. And some men, some guys are just not capable of handling it. Or having watched the film and watching Tony Stark in the film, I think to some extent there was an aspect of him that did not come to terms with it because he didn't want to necessarily be the patriarch which is why Jeff Bridges' character had such influence in the company, you try to avoid it. So as much as I've given it consideration, I personally don't think I'll ever be ready for when that eventual time is going to come. Just knowing myself. And there will always be a lingering question or two that after the fact... I wished I could have asked in my time. But the the regret and the pain that's still there, while ultimately making a bigger point about what this says about the company and his legacy and all of the things that go into that, I think is a much bigger piece of this movie than people give it credit for. It's not finished. In no way is this storyline settled realistically you don't get that final moment of clarity between tony and his dad until the last avenger movie but it, this is clearly something that comes to define the character and how they relate and i think there's no coincidence that this came up even in a movie that it clearly was not the focus of the movie so out of the ones we've nominated though now that we've taken that rather large aside, what uh, do you think was the best line? Boy, it's kind of hard to go back to the lines after we've gone into the abyss. Understood. Um, I don't know. I really, I'm having a very difficult time going back to the lines after this conversation, to be honest. All right, so I'm just going to leave them up generally then, and we're just not going to pick one. Uh, I'll leave that up as, as the total of all of them. And they can all be taken for whatever f face value uh, anybody wants to put on it. Uh, I'll just nominate a couple of these other ones quickly for funniest line. You've been called the Da Vinci of our time. What do you say to that? Absolutely ridiculous. I don't paint. <laughs> uh, and then also, uh, so you must be the famous Pepper Potts. Tony still has you doing his dry cleaning. I do anything and everything Mr. Stark asks of me which includes, from time to time, taking out the trash. Will that be all? I, I think that's probably one of my favorite lines of the entire movie, just for how snarky it is and how m much I wish that I had that just clever comeback for the amount of times somebody tries to insult me like that. All right, so let's move into our Stanley rubric. What did you have down for Legacy? 9.5. 
Simply Interesting. Because, simply because how many films were derived from this and the amount of money that's been made in Hollywood and how it's ultimately impacted filmmaking in general and the whole idea or concept of blockbusters. So I get where your point is. I probably contributed that more to impact significance. So I actually went with a 6.5, which is part of the reason that I thought that was interesting. Because I think this is one of the forgotten movies of the MCU at this point. I think for a lot of people, they kind of gloss over this phase one. And for most people paying attention to the Avengers, it starts with that original Avengers movie for them. They may have gone back and watched these and may enjoy them. Uh, I know that a lot of people at the time, especially since, uh, and I forget if I've told this on the podcast before, so forgive me, but I worked at a, a Sam's Club for like three months out of a summer, four months out of a summer, and I was right next to the electronics department. This movie was right around that time, and it kept showing basically on a loop. So I've probably seen this movie like 80 times because of that, in addition to things like Marley and Me and Bolt. You know, great films of cinema history, along with Spider-Man 3. Woohoo! But anyway, the point uh, I'm trying to make is uh, that a lot of people that were around me actually liked having this movie on by comparison to half of those other movies because this is a very rewatchable movie. Obviously, we're not in rewatchability yet, but just putting that that forward. So I think this did have an audience and a crowd, but it certainly didn't grow into what it was eventually. I think that there is something to be said because uh, usually we limit impact significance to the first five years. So maybe I am a little bit lower on this, but there are some other pieces of this that more contribute towards the classicness category. And this is where I'm trying to define or put proper borders on all of this. I just think this is kind of one that's swept under the rug. This certainly doesn't have the same resonance with the general population that something like Black Panther or any of the Avengers movies or uh, even Guardians of the Galaxy does, where everybody kind of knows who you're talking about by comparison. Well, I, I, I went much higher for simple reason that, but for this, you wouldn't have the rest of them. And that's fair. And ultimately, that's the key because, you know, and I, I think about this, all right, this, uh, the impact of this movie, I remember sitting in my office and the guy that I worked with, it was the senior partner of my firm, Leon, came in and he and his wife were huge movie buffs and they would go to everything and anything. Anything that was at the local cinema, they tended to go to. Even the most bizarre things, you'd like, why in the world would this 60-year-old man and his wife want to go see... Yeah, I remember like seeing them at the last Jason Bourne movie. Yeah. It kind of floored me a little bit, but all right. Point but taken. he went and he came in and he just was going on and on about this film, Iron Man, and how great Robert Downey was and how he thought, you know, Robert Downey would never be this good in this film, but oh my God, it was so great. You know, and I'm thinking about this and I'm like, here's somebody that I would not think would be enthralled in the Marvel universe. And um, ultimately he was, 
And my guess is he's seen almost every one of the films because of it. And I think there's a lot of people in this country because they watched this film that have looked at or watched all the other films or started down a path of watching them that they didn't have necessarily before or really had no interest in Marvel until this. You're probably right. I am probably generally too low because, again, and I kind of made this point earlier, and so maybe I'm contradicting myself from earlier in the show that this set the tone and the structure for the rest of the franchise. And so from that, you get all of the rest of those movies that have been generally successful. You can plug in new directors. You can plug in new characters. You can make a movie with Paul Rudd as Ant-Man, which would be ridiculous if you started out the franchise. But because it's built on the back of all of the things like this that came before it, it's ultimately successful, and he can be thrust into the middle of all those Avenger movies. So I guess I will raise mine to an 8. So that'll put it at 8.75 generally i just think that in the short term for what this movie does because how much can you credit it with the overall success and the burgeoning uh because this was only the first in a stack of dominoes but it wasn't the biggest domino that created the context of where we're at cinematically and the franchise system so if the first domino is set three inches away from all the other dominoes and tips over and doesn't hit anything, the other dominoes all fall to anyway? Maybe it's not the best or the cleanest example, but let's say, for I example, say. the Avenger, the first Avenger movie didn't work, that we wouldn't have another 15 or so films after that. Or if so there are other pieces. the future of the franchise on a film that was successful. Because a later film failed. I didn't say any of them failed. I'm saying that this didn't have the same legacy that you could say other movies in the franchise do. Except that this franchise started it down the path. If another film was bad and killed the franchise, it's that film's problem, not this one. If you don't have an additional 15 films many of which are billion-dollar films that end up creating, you know, we would have never gotten to things like Black Panther or Captain Marvel or the last couple of Avenger movies where this all pays off. I think it would have undercut the legacy even more than that. I've already come up to an eight. Okay, fine. So whine a little more. Let's go. Come on, next. Well, fine, then give me your impact significance. Nine. Turd. Why? I don't know, just because you've been so confrontational? Yeah, whatever. This is your film. This isn't mine. I'm not a comic book guy. I came into this going, ugh. And I came in with wide eyes and trying to appreciate it for what it was, which is a piece of entertainment that had... Uh, I have this as middle of the road cultural significance and tried to glean out of it some something significant and i think for the most part when we've talked about it i have so i'm coming at it as probably half of america has who've never seen these films or even given them a second thought but impact for the exact same reason it started a whole group of films going down a path of of considering things that 
most of us would have never thought about. Let me take it in this direction. I gave it a straight 10. I kind of talked to you a little bit about this over the weekend, and I don't think I've ever given an impact significance a straight 10. But I want to set the... Watch a film in the first place. It is one of those that, like, I don't mind rewatching, but I have reserved because we've done enough of these now where 10 is going to be, like, the movies that I'm constantly rewatching or, like, the go-tos. Nines are going to be the one that are, like favorites but i don't necessarily watch a lot uh, and you kind of make your way down the list kind of that way so when i say five it's a palatable film that's fine but it's not one that i'm like oh sleepless in seattle's on netflix we gotta watch that i describe this category as macaroni and cheese it's one of those things where you know it's when you're feeling bad and you're having a bad day and you come home and you just want to like completely get away from whatever it was that was just your crap that was going on around you and you turn on the TV and you see ah this is on okay i can just sit and watch this and it's and my world will be better because i'm not dealing with it so on the cliche of regular um, movie tropes, women turn to pints of ice cream, Dana turns to pints of mac and cheese. <laughs> Continue. <clears throat> okay. Your score. Well, I actually had a little higher, but I'm going to reduce it just slightly so that I'm the actual mean. I'm going to go with a six. I had 6.5, but I'll go with 6, just so that I get to determine what the number is. Well, I mean, by putting it kind of in the middle and then reserving it with our three-way on that um, scoring system, it ends up at a 6, which I think is, is a comfortable number. It's more rewatchable than not, but it's not one that's, like, high on anybody's uh, particular list. Now, the next piece of it was the one that really kind of surprised me. Um, I would have thought this would have had a fairly good audience score. It only had a 75 audience score. Which, wow. Yeah, I I was very surprised by um, the fact that there are 25% of people that don't care for this movie. Uh, or from like a general audience, not the critics audience. Um, we, we try and factor some of that out uh, because part of this show is doing it without the critics. But, well, I th I'm sure I th if you manipulate the statistics, there's 25% of Americans who believe that there are actually aliens doing anal probes. So, yeah. Seriously? Th that's <laughs> where you went? <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> you... you <sighs> I hope you're digging that out. <laughs> no, I'm leaving it exactly where it should be, right in the middle. So anybody that's stuck around this far into the podcast now has a nice little thing. In fact, I take out 30-second clips to add to the front of this. I may put that as our 30-second no. clip that, that will bring people into the podcast. I'm just I'm just following the uh, the whole idea of you know, controversy is always good. Oh, you're you're setting up the the probe on that one. Ay ay ay. 
Come on, Dad. All right, so that ends up at a 43.16 as our final score, um, which puts it squarely between the Dirty Dozen, ironically, <laughs> yes. and Silver Linings Playbook for number 21 on the current list. Uh, right. You can see the show notes for this episode. It'll be included um, in the link on uh, whichever platform you're listening to, as well as the link to the uh, official full list of uh, the 30 movies we've done so far, uh, or if uh, you're listening to this later, uh, any of the ones that we've added after that, we keep the master list on my personal blog. So, why don't you just read the top three on our category list, just for the benefit of the audience? Oh, you want me to recap? Just give the top three so far for the for the year so so. Oh, far. you want the movies? I thought the you wanted movies? me to read back. Oh. I, okay, so the top three movies that we still have on the list are High Noon, Back to the Future, and The Best Years of Our Lives in that order. Pulp Fiction and then Groundhog Day rounding out our top five. Okay. Seriously, Pulp Fiction. Yes. <laughs> I didn't... Dana wasn't a part of that episode. Uh, yeah. Nor was I a part of the Back to the Future episode. Yes, yes. So, all right, remaining questions. I think the biggest one is um, this movie picked the exact right spot to end the movie. Frankly, this could have been an SNL sketch. But what happens immediately when they get on the ground? You've now met in this really romantic way, and now you're like, you have to put the rest of this life together. I know it's an unanswerable question, but she just dumped her fiancé to go on Valentine's Day to the Empire State Building, meets a completely different guy, so now you've got to tell your family that you're scrapping all your other plans with this and starting to date a guy with a kid that you stalked after you basically met him through a national syndicated radio program. You don't say a word about it to anybody that you are loving or or part of your family. You might say something to a friend, but that would be it. You would wait until you were well into the relationship before you would mention it. Okay, that would be fine. She's already mentioned the entire thing to Rosie O'Donnell, to her former fiancé, and, if memory serves me, she's even offhandedly remarked over certain things to her brother, David Hyde Pierce. Yes. So it's not like she could escape any of that. Well, David Hyde Pierce, because he was on Broadway, is living in New York, so, you know, she would be there so she could actually, you know, share with him, I guess, but... Anyway, but anyway, no. Um, yeah, I can understand, but you're in New York, which is a fairly, you know, so you get down the ground, you go and you have dinner in one of the great restaurants in New York, and then you take the carriage ride through Central Park, and you end up with this being the perfect evening, especially once Jonah falls asleep. Um, you you can do about anything you, you want. You, you're just right back to the probing conversation. <laughs> All right. My other one. Is Sam an actually good dad? Okay, he stumbles in. He le- eventually leaves the door open. But his he finds his son, even if he's eight, and you can give them the benefit of the doubt, alone in his room with a girl and then his immediate instinct is to 
follow his kid's wish to close the door. He no, and then he reopened it. Yes, a crack. but like he where was it. he in order to allow this thing? He lets him go over and spend a lot of time at the other house. He lets him get on a plane. Obviously, he's he talking about... He didn't let him get on a plane. He didn't know he was getting on the plane. Uh, he talks to the kid like he should have seen Fatal Attraction. <laughs> the kid's asking okay, about so, sex okay, scratches. You have to, okay, you have to imagine, too, he's a single guy, a single dad. This whole single dad thing is new to him. He doesn't know, do I close the door? Do I not close the door? What, you know, what should I do? And he closed it, and then he reopened it. You know, he... But there are whole scenes in the here where he acts like Jonah is his drinking buddy, like it's Rob Reiner's character. Well, I think there's a lot of people who don't know how to raise a kid. They don't know how to do anything else, and they do become a buddy. Well, I think he was perfectly fine, because quite frankly, you got... uh, When the kid's eight, he doesn't know what anything is, let alone know how to use it. So I doubt highly that at eight years old, if he's in, if, you know, one of my children was in the room and with a member of the opposite sex, that I'm going to have any big problem because at that that age, age, they're not really into anything significant. So, um... I don't know. You tell. Let me. Let me. Let let, let me. Let me turn this back on you. I don't think Tom Hanks's character as a father was that far off from what I was as a father, and was I a bad father? Now remember, this is going to be sent out over the airwaves and be available. You want a recap of the whole nine yards? Okay, Which one. Tom Hanks probably would have let his son watch if he's watching movies with women scratching backs. <laughs> one situation. Oh, just one. Just sure. one. Okay. Well, I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Um, please stay tuned next week. Uh, we haven't really selected a film yet uh, upcoming that we're going to want to do. We have some guest appearances that uh, we're hoping to have in the next few weeks. Uh, we have a few people preparing some stuff that we're really excited about, um, but uh, we're, we're not sure what we're going to bring for you next week, but um, make sure to stay tuned for that. Um, otherwise, like I said, follow along. You can find the show notes for this specific episode on my uh, personal blog that will be in the show notes to this episode as well as our full list uh thank you everyone and have a great rest of your week is anchor fm good week and good viewing